Thank you, Dr. Lilbeck. Let me pray with you as we begin. Father in heaven, we all are desperately needy of your help because we're fragile and we're finite and we're fallible and we're sinful and proud and fearful. And so I ask, Father, for you to subdue my corruption and for you to fill me mercifully with your Holy Spirit so that I may speak truth and that you would guard me from error and that you would give ears to hear and a voice to articulate your word concerning your truth. I ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, among the reasons for my honor to deliver the Gaffin Lecture on Theology, Culture, and Mission is the fact that Dr. Gaffin's confrontation with N.T. Wright at the Auburn Avenue Pastors Conference and his book, 2006, By Faith, Not By Sight, arrived in my life, those two events, the book and the conference, at a time when I was wrestling mightily with justification by faith and particularly the new perspective on Paul and with N.T. Wright in particular. Not many books are worthy of a slow and meticulous reading. This one is. And if you want to look at how I do that afterwards, uh, with the markings in here from cover to cover, not a page unmarked as far as I can see, flipping through it, um, you can see it afterwards. What he says there in response to N.T. Wright, in particular, will become the launching pad into my topic, which is the new Calvinism and the new community, the doctrines of grace and the meaning of race. But first, before we launch from there into the substance of the lecture, we have to do some explaining and some defining. So first, some explanations for why are you tackling this topic, in particular at Westminster and in this lecture, and and secondly, what do you mean by it? What are the definitions? So that's the order, and then we get into the substance of things. I have five reasons for why I'm doing this, and here they are. Number one, The lecture that I've been asked to give is entitled The Gaffin Lectures, Theology, Culture, Mission. Well, in my understanding of my title, the doctrines of grace or the five points or soteriological Calvinism are theology. The meaning of race corresponds to culture and the call to pursue a new and ethnically ethnically diverse and harmonious community corresponds to mission. Second, the doctrines of grace are biblical and true and beautiful. The sovereignty of God is glorious beyond words and the gracious governing hand of God in ruling salvation and all things is sweet and precious. And since I love to talk about what is biblical and true and beautiful and glorious and precious and sweet, this is my topic. Third, racial and ethnic diversity and harmony are not overly addressed in our churches and are a central aim of the blood work of Christ 
in ransoming a people for God and a bride for himself. Fourth, I am part of the new Calvinism and feel a fatherly responsibility to continually speak into it dimensions of truth that I think it needs to hear. And fifth, as a part of the new Calvinism, I have a debt to pay to Westminster Seminary and the lineage of Reformed theology that you represent. There would be no new Calvinism without you. So those are my five reasons for doing what I'm doing. Now, what about definitions? What am I referring to when I say New Calvinism? In 2008, Colin Hansen wrote a book entitled Young, Restless, Reformed, A Journalist's Journey with the New Calvinism. And for better or worse, we have the titling committee at Crossway Books to thank for the term because the term New Calvinism doesn't occur in the book. But that's the title of the book. (laughs) The next year, Time Magazine, 2009, March 12 issue, had a cover story entitled um, Ten Ideas changing the world right now. And number three was the new Calvinism. So what is it? And the best way I know to define it is to give you 12 features of the movement as I see it. And I don't mean that the features are Dividing lines between the old and the new. I don't think there are such dividing lines. At least not ones that you could put your finger on. Unless it would be, in one case, the technology that is prominent in the new Calvinism that didn't exist 20 years ago and therefore is not possible to have been part of the old Calvinism. I'm thinking Twitter and Facebook and blogging and internet websites and so on. So I don't think when I give you these features of the new Calvinism, you should be thinking in terms of, oh, that separates it from the old Calvinism. That's not the way I'm thinking. I'm calling them features, not distinctives, especially not unique distinctives. How can there be distinctives from the old when the old is as diverse as St. Augustine and Adoniram Judson, Francis Turretin and John Bunyan, John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon, John Knox and J.I. Packer, Cotton Mather and R.C. Sproul, Abraham Kuyper and William Carey, Lemuel Haynes and Robert Dabney, Theodore Beza and James Boyce, Isaac Bacchus and Martin Lloyd-Jones. If there is such a diversity in the old, then we really cannot find dividing lines between the old and the new. I don't think so. They're not there. And why would I include Packer and Sproul and Boyce among the old and not the new? How can you draw a line between the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and the Gospel Coalition? Who can figure that out? How can you draw a hard line between the Banner of Truth publishers And Crossway Books. How can you draw a hard line between Elder D.J. Ward, who's going to be with the Lord now, Main Street Church, Lexington, Kentucky, and Thibiti Anyabwile? No. 
the old is, is too diverse and the connections between the old and the new are too organic to claim things that are new in the new and weren't present in any form or aspects of the old. That's not true. The new is too diverse to claim any uniform downgrade from the old or upgrade from the old. History is too complex for broad brush commendations of one over the other or condemnations of one under the other. Any given issue that you try to address, you can find periods and persons and movements among the old that would outshine the new. There is no claim, therefore, in my assessment that the new is better. So, with that preface, here are my 12 features that I think define the new Calvinism. Number one, the new Calvinism in its allegiance to the inerrancy of the Bible embraces the biblical truths behind the five points, TULIP, while having an aversion to using the acronym or any other systematic packaging, along with a sometimes qualified embrace of limited atonement. The focus is on Calvinistic soteriology, but not to the exclusion or the appreciation of the broader scope of Calvin's vision. Number two, the new Calvinism embraces the sovereignty of God in salvation and in all the affairs of life and history, including evil and suffering. Third, the new Calvinism has a strong complementarian flavor as opposed to egalitarian, with an emphasis on the flourishing of men and women in relationships where men embrace a call to robust, humble, Christ-like servant leadership. Fourth, the new Calvinism leans toward being culture-affirming as opposed to culture-denying while holding fast to some very culturally alien positions like positions on same-sex practice and abortion. Fifth, the new Calvinism embraces the essential place of the local church. It is led mainly by pastors, has a vibrant church planting, bent, produces widely sung worship music, and exalts the preached word as central to the work of God locally and globally. Sixth, the new Calvinism is aggressively mission-driven, including missional impact on social evils, evangelistic impact on personal networks, and missionary impact on the unreached peoples of the world. Seven, the new Calvinism is interdenominational with a strong, some would say oxymoronic, baptistic element. Eight, the new Calvinism includes charismatics and non-charismatics. Nine, the new Calvinism puts a priority on pietism or piety in the Puritan vein with an emphasis on the essential role of the affections in Christian living while esteeming the life of the mind and being very productive in it and embracing the value of serious scholarship Jonathan Edwards would be invoked as a model of this combination of the affections and the life of the mind more often than John Calvin, whether that's fair to Calvin or not. Ten, the new Calvinism is vibrantly engaged in publishing books and even more remarkably in the world of the Internet with hundreds of energetic bloggers and social media activists with Twitter as the increasingly default way of signaling things new and old that should be noticed and read. Eleven, 
The new Calvinism is international in scope, multi-ethnic in expression, culturally diverse. There is no single geographic, racial, cultural, governing center. There are no officers, no organization, nor any loose affiliation that would encompass the whole. I would dare say that there are outcroppings of this movement that nobody, including me, in this room has ever heard of. Twelve, the new Calvinism is robustly gospel-centered, cross-centered, with dozens of books rolling off the presses, coming at the gospel from every conceivable angle and applying it to all areas of life with a commitment to seeing the historic doctrine of justification finding its fruit in sanctification personally and communally. And I end with 11 and 12 because they become the launching pad for the substance of this lecture. And number 11 was the multi-ethnicity of it and number 12 was the link between justification and sanctification conceived both personally and communally. One of the most astonishing things in my life, which is a big statement, has been the gradual emergence of the multi-ethnic, multicultural diversity of the New Calvinism. And by multi-ethnic, I mean the fact that the New Calvinism has sprung up with its own natural expression among African-Americans, Latinos, Asians. African-Americans like Thabiti Anyabwile, Vodi Bochum, Anthony Bradley, Michael Campbell, Anthony Carter, Leonce Crump, Carl Ellis, Ken Jones, Eric Mason, Trillia Newbell, Eric Redman, not to mention the African blacks like Conrad Mbewe or the British blacks like Topi Colioso, Hispanics like D.A. Horton, Carlos Montoya, Suhail Michelin, uh, Miguel Nunez and Juan Sanchez, Asians like Francis Chan, Steve Chong, Richard Chin, Stephen Chin, Jeff Louis, Stephen Um, and so on. There are hundreds of names that ought to be on each of those lists. And by culturally diverse, I mean, for example, in music. From Stuart Townend and Keith Getty on the one side to Christian hip-hop on the other. Thirty years ago, did anyone see reformed rap (laughs) as an even remote possibility? the likes of Lecrae and Shailin and Trip Lee and Derek Minor and Propaganda and Tadashi, did anyone see, and I want to say this almost with tears, did anyone see major urban ministry conferences where big God theology was sung and preached and would draw thousands of young people from our city? This pursuit of the new community through the gospel of justification is the link with Richard Gaffin's work on justification and its relationship to the new perspective. So back to the book. Representing new, the new perspective, N.T. Wright argues that the Reformation emphasis has been mistaken. And that, quote, justification in the first century was not about how someone might establish a relationship with God. It was about God's eschatological definition of who was, in fact, a member of his people. In standard Christian theological language, it was not so much about soteriology as about ecclesiology, not so much about salvation as about the church, close quote from N.T. Wright. 
Now, in that way, the new perspective is attempting to seize the moral high ground on the communal dimensions of the impact of justification in life. To this, Dr. Geffen responds in his book, By Faith, Not By Sight, with these words. I remain unpersuaded that the Reformation has gotten it wrong and that for Paul, justification is at least primarily, if not entirely, about ecclesiology rather than soteriology, about whom you may eat with and are to have fellowship as a Christian rather than how you become a Christian. For Paul, justification undoubtedly has inalienable ecclesiological implications. I'm coming back to that phrase. I like it. Start over. For Paul, this is still a quote from Gaffin. For Paul, justification undoubtedly has inalienable ecclesiological implications, and these are a prominent concern, especially in Galatians, These implications must not be denied, obscured, or downplayed through an unduly individualistic soteriological mindset. No doubt, too, they have not been appreciated heretofore as they should, but justification in Paul is essentially, primarily, soteriological. It is a transfer term describing what takes place in an individual's transition from wrath to grace. Contrary to Christopher Stendhal, who said that it was simply a plague of the Western introspective conscience that we were all seeking to find a gracious God. That's false. That's human and desperately needed and prominent in all of Paul's letters. That's me. Not <laughs> so I totally agree. I totally agree with this quote from... Dr. Geffen's book, and I give thanks for the defense and explanation of this standpoint, namely that the reformed, historic, traditional articulation of justification by faith and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to God's people who are in Christ, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, as articulated with final authority in the Bible alone, is true and does not indeed, and does indeed, have massive implications for membership in the new community, but is not synonymous with defining the new community. The Messiah is gathering a new community. And justification has massive implications as to the nature of that new community. And I think they will be lost if we lose the historic meaning of justification. So Dr. Gaffin says um, that the reformation of understanding of justification has inalienable ecclesiological implications. In other words, the the justification proper, the divine act of God in justifying a sinner is not about whom you have fellowship with, but has implications for whom you have fellowship with. And therefore, he says, these implications should not be denied or obscured or downplayed. Now, the most common place where this is obvious is Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2 in particular, where Peter's failure to keep eating with the Gentiles when men came from James said false things about the gospel of justification. Peter's behavior spoke loudly to the effect, true Christians, in order to be justified, need more. They need to not eat with Gentiles. They need to have certain conformity to Jewish food laws. That's what his behavior was saying. 
And Paul, of course, put him straight. So a failure to grasp the implications of justification by faith resulted in de facto racism that Paul rebuked as a contradiction of the gospel. It's even plainer, I think, in Romans 3, 28 to 30. Listen to these amazing words. And they belong to the historic interpretation of justification, not to the new perspective. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So the oneness of God yields a singular way of justifying the ungodly, namely by faith alone and without any dependence on ceremonial, ethnic, moral distinctives of one race or one ethnicity or one religion over Another, They are of no advantage in commending us to God or being declared righteous before God. Which means, to use Dr. Gaffin's phrase, they have inalienable, or the, the doctrine of justification has inalienable ecclesiological implications for the new community, the new Israel, the bride. There is a saving design in justification to level the differences between Jew and Gentile because it is by faith that the circumcised will be justified and by faith that the uncircumcised will be justified. The New Calvinism has been vigilant. This is remarkable. I wrote to several friends to say, now is this right? As you see the lay of the land, is this accurate? The New Calvinism has been vigilant in holding fast to the historic reformed understanding of justification over against the new perspective. That's a remarkable thing. And my point here is that this allegiance to the historic reformation understanding of justification by faith alongside serious engagement with racial harmony and racial diversity is not an anomaly. It is, in fact, necessary. The deepening of the discovery of reformed truth has not obstructed the path to racial harmony and racial diversity. It has empowered it. Wherever you find a failure to take seriously the multi-ethnic nature of Christ's new community, what you find are people not hindered by their reformed commitments, but blind to the inalienable biblical implications of those commitments. Justification by faith is not the only aspect of reformed theology that is empowering this vision of racial, ethnic, cultural diversity in the new Calvinism. There are two others I would like to mention. The doctrines of grace and the glory of God. Let's take those one at a time. In spite of the new Calvinism's disinclination, I don't have to be among this group in this regard, in spite of the disinclination to use TULIP and the desire to distance themselves from such acronyms, and such artificial systematizations, in spite of that, the new Calvinism does embrace the five points of Calvinism. And where people start to drift away on L, they start to drift away from the family. So let me try to show that this commitment to the five points, 
is part of the empowering of the commitment to racial harmony and racial diversity. I don't have time to do all five. I've done that elsewhere. Let's take the T and the U. Total depravity. The most crucial meaning of total in total depravity is that we are all totally unable to save ourselves from the dead, unresponsive spiritual condition in which we are in our rebellion against God. Romans 8, 7. The mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And that's who we are apart from the mighty work of the Holy Spirit. There are people of the flesh and people of the Spirit only. We are in this, therefore, together. Every race, every ethnicity, united in helpless depravity. The ethnic diversity of hell is a crucial doctrine. It's expressed in Romans 2.9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek in hell. God is no respecter of persons in salvation or damnation. The human race and every ethnic group on the planet are united in this great reality. All depraved. All condemned. We are lost in the woods together. We are all sinking in the same boat. Every ethnicity. We are all dying of the same disease. Every ethnicity. And if we saw more clearly, these two things would happen. If we saw the massive implications of total depravity for our camaraderie and condemnation, two things would happen. One, we would all be humbled and frightened and made desperate like little children to find a Savior. And I have never, ever seen or heard of a white hooded Klansman or a Farrakhan follower who is brokenhearted for his sin, humble and desperate for a Savior. Never. Racism won't stand before the recognition of our camaraderie in misery. And the second thing that would happen is we would see, we would see that other people's sinning is the fruit of the very impulses of our hearts. And therefore, we would be slow to condemn and quick to mercy. The doctrine of total depravity has huge implications and a massive role to play in humbling all ethnic groups and giving us a desperate equality in condemnation. What about the you? Unconditional election. After Paul's sermon in Antioch of Pisidia, Luke says, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the Word of God and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed People believe because they're ordained to eternal life, not the other way around. Acts 13, 48. The election to salvation precedes the conditions of salvation. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This means... That God did not and does not choose his people on the basis of skin color or racial or ethnic distinctives of any kind. 
No ethnic group can say they are chosen because of God's preference for their physical or psychological or spiritual or cultural or intellectual qualities. He's not. No ethnic group can say that they are not chosen because of anything they have or don't have, anything they are or are not. God's choice is unconditional. It's not based on anything in us. He is absolutely free and unconstrained. This is His glory. This is His name. And acting this way to uphold that name and that glory is His righteousness. And therefore, unconditional election severs forever the deepest root of racism and all ethnocentrism. If I am among God's elect, it is owing entirely to free grace. Not my distinctives. And therefore, there's no ground in God's election for pride. There's no ground in God's election for despair. I don't know if you've thought this through for personal pastoral counseling. This is a little, it's a little aside. I've been a pastor for 33 years. And to have someone sitting in your office presenting reasons why they cannot be saved because of the horrors of their past. I just love to get in their faces and say, who do you think you are to presume to dictate to God what conditions he can ignore in election? God chooses apart from any conditions in your life. You cannot articulate enough to me that would even phase my inclination to think you couldn't be elect. It is a great way, preparer. It dispels every objection. There is no condition you can describe to me that would exclude you from election. So, trust Him. Right now. Close that parenthesis. See if I can find my place here. (laughs) I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This election, before you had done anything good or evil or were anything, God performs so that you will have no ground for boasting in your ethnicity or any other feature of your life. Therefore, total depravity and unconditional election, just to mention two, and it gets better, which I'm going to leave out as you go from L to I to P. All of them empowering racial harmony. And wherever you find a neglecting of or an indifference toward racial diversity and racial harmony, you find a person not hindered by their commitment to tulip, but by their ignorance of its implications in the world. Last, not only justification by faith, not only the doctrines of grace, but the glory of God. These are three massive dimensions of reformed theology and we'll close with this one the glory of God the unifying overarching all explaining focus of reformed theology is the glory of God so I was delighted to hear and I didn't know it when I came that Dr. Gaffin is working on a project in which he is helping to translate Gerhardus Voss lectures so that they can be produced for Logos online. And I had at this point in my talk prepared this quote. In 1891, Voss asked the question, 
Here, Hortus Voss asked the question, what is it about Reformed theology that enables that tradition to grasp the fullness of Scripture unlike any other branch of Christendom? And here's his answer. Quote, because Reformed theology took hold of the Scriptures in their deepest root idea. This root idea, which served as the key to unlock the rich treasuries of the Scriptures, was the preeminence of God's glory in the consideration of all that has been created. To which I say, Amen and Hallelujah. If anything marks the New Calvinism, it is the prevalence of big God theology. It's the reversal, at least in part, of David Wells' lament. It is this God, he said, Wells said, this God, majestic in, and holy in His being, This God whose love knows no bounds because His holiness knows no limits who has disappeared from the modern evangelical world. The New Calvinism, imperfectly and in part, is a reversal of that lament. When the New Calvinism poses the question, Why did God create and in His providence ordain that there be such a dazzling diversity among the peoples of the world? Sixteen plus thousand ethnicities. Why did He do that? What's He up to in this kind of world in which we live. The New Calvinism answers because the glory of God in Christ will shine more brightly when Christ saves and assembles a unified worshiping people from that dazzling array of diverse peoples than if He only assembled that worshiping people from one or two or ten or fifty. They're all there precisely because the diversity of those who follow the King will bear witness to the multidimensional facets of the diamond they are admiring. Psalm 96. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples, for... Stop. Let's let this sink in now to get the logic. Westminster, be about this. Declare His glory. That's the deep root idea from which everything is growing. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works growing out of that root. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Why? Why? For... Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Now think through the logic of that verse. Be about penetrating all the diversities of the peoples. Be about this with the glory of God. Why? Because there is a kind of praise that corresponds to the kind of glory. And the glory is great, and there are greatnesses in the praise that must be there and aren't there yet. And the connection with the first half of the verse says that the greatnesses that are not there yet is the praise that will rise from the diversities of the peoples. I love these flags. 
Last time I was here was a missions conference. Goodness, 25 years ago or whenever it was. I had to go through a kind of second Copernican revolution after the big one in 1970 and 71 and 68, 71 when I was becoming theologically reformed. I had to go to another one in 1983 in which the duh factor hit me that if you love the glory of God, you will love the global glory of God. (laughs) What's been wrong with you? That is really, isn't it, the pathetic commentary on the remaining corruptions and blindnesses of our own souls. Oh, how we need each other. The vast diversity of the peoples are to be a reflection of the vast diversities of the beauties of the glory. It's precisely the diversity of the peoples all of them recognizing the glory of God. All of them reflecting the glory of God. All of them resounding in praise to the glory of God that makes the praise suitable for the greatness of the glory of God. That's what Psalm 96 says. Or to say it another way, Romans 15:11, when Paul says, Praise the Lord, all you nations. And let all the peoples extol him. He's saying there is something about God that is so universally praiseworthy. Something about God that is so profoundly beautiful. Something about God that is so comprehensively worthy and so deeply satisfying that God will find passionate admirers in every one of the diverse peoples of the world. The true greatness of His glory will be manifest in the breadth of the diversity of those who perceive and cherish His beauty. If you, if you are a painter and you paint a painting... And the hundred people in your guild love your painting and everybody else finds it totally unintelligible. You're not a great painter. They may think you are. You're not. But if you paint a painting and every guild and every ethnicity on the planet sees it as glorious, you're a great. There is only one being that will accomplish that in himself and his son. One being will be admired by every ethnicity. And the beauties and the depth and the riches of the glory of this being will be such that all the ethnicities will own it. So here we have a king like no other king. Other kings conquer peoples and subdue them, put them in subjection by force, lest hatred for the king break out in open rebellion. Witness Russia. But God is a king so glorious, so beautiful, that he will have a willing, eager, admiring, loving, happy people from the entire vast diversity of all the peoples of the world. The greatness of His glory, the many-faceted brilliance of His splendor will be reflected not in the monochrome of a few million local admirers, but in the polychrome of 10,000 cultures who find him to be there all in all. So, the remarkable diversity and the commitment to that harmony and that diversity ethnically and racially in the new Calvinism is not 
a theological anomaly. It is a beautiful and to be sure imperfect outworking of the inalienable implications of the greatest themes of Reformed theology. Justification by faith. The five points. The glory of God. And for this movement, whether short-lived or long, I make zero triumphalistic predictions about the new Calvinism. Could go out of existence tomorrow in God's sovereignty. He wouldn't miss a beat. He would be God Almighty and have another plan just as good. Better. He's always doing better. So, zero predictions here about some big triumphant world-conquering movement. I doubt it. You don't even want to know my eschatology. (laughs) Do another lecture on that someday. But, while it exists, and while we are blessed by it, and while we can speak into it, for this movement, short or long, the meaning of race of all the ethnicities of the world, the reason they, we, exist is the radiance of the glory of God in the gladness of a ransomed church from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I'll say it again. The radiant, the meaning of race, the meaning of the diversities of the world That meaning is the radiance of the glory of God. Reflected in the gladness of the nations in God. From every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So may God grant that these old truths would bear ever such new and beautiful fruit in all the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we stand in awe of your glory. Our language is so weak and your glory is so bright, so deep, so high, so wide, so immeasurable that it takes every people group recognizing in it their unique perceptions to come together to create the great praise. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Use Westminster Seminary. Use the legacy of Richard Gaffin to bring that great praise to pass. Hasten the day when all the peoples would bow and you would come. Through Christ I pray.